Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free. Or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hello and welcome to the CapEx podcast Free Exchange. I'm John Ashmore, the editor of CapEx. Not many organisations can claim to have had Adam Smith, Edmund Burke and Karl Marx as members. Then again, not many organisations are anything like the Royal Society for the Encouragement of Arts, Manufactures and Commerce, better known today as the RSA. For over 260 years, its mission has been nothing short of improving an entire nation, funding inventions, encouraging trade, planting millions of trees, putting on the Great Exhibition and creating Britain's first exam board. And in that time, it's been a hotbed of utilitarianism, a home to conservatives, radicals, and even the founding father of communism. Who better to discuss this fascinating, intensely colourful history than Anton Howes, the RSA's house historian, whose history of the society, Arts and Minds, was released in May. I began by asking Anton the obvious question, what is the RSA actually for? Basically, the RSA is Britain's semi-official, voluntary, subscription-funded national improvement agency in anything and everything, and has been for the past 260-odd years. And what that means is that it was doing all sorts of different initiatives, whatever it thought filled the gaps in what was being done in Britain and increasingly the world at the time. So that's anything from, in its early days, prizes for inventions that weren't patented, so the sorts of inventions that may not be profitable off the bat, Um, or the sorts of inventions that they felt would benefit the public good. In the 19th century, that meant things like exhibitions, the Great Exhibition of 1851, the famous Crystal Palace. That was actually their initiative originally, and then kind of taken forward by a Royal Commission just to make things a little bit more official, but still the same people involved in it. The first public examinations in this country, um, in a kind of general sense, were a utilitarian project, so the growth of the early education state or the state's involvement in, edu- in education, that's another of their initiatives, patent reform, copyright reform, buying an entire village in the 1920s. This is um, West Wickham. That's right, yeah, West yeah. Wickham, which you yeah. know, if you go there, you'll see a little plaque saying purchased and restored by the RSA and then yeah. handed over to the National Trust to preserve ancient and, and medieval cottages. And then even in the 1960s, people like Prince, uh, Prince Philip, who was the president at the time, being involved in the origins of what we now call environmentalism. It's a remarkable organisation because it kind of defies, like you say, it kind of def- seems to defy categorization. I mean, I, right. There's one bit where you talk about a typical year of the society's lectures might actually include lectures entitled Recent Improvements in Decorators' Materials, The Economic Importance of a Study of Insect Life, War Balloons, 
old aid pensions and the role of France in West Africa. Is there a kind of coherent thread to that? Is it just the desire for improving things? Yeah, I think that's the only coherent thread you can pull when you start looking at those sorts of different things. I mean, those are some of the 19th century lectures. Today, you might have a bunch on behavioural economics or, yeah. you know, like I think the typical thing, and you might have you know a lot of big thinkers, Stephen Pinker and so on, coming and giving their talks and just trying to provoke the society's members and the public at large. Yeah, I think improvements are general... Trying to, as I said, filling in the gaps. That seems to be one a, a phrase I kept on coming across throughout from people who are involved, especially in the later 20th century. And earlier, you kind of have equivalent things um, being said. So trying to find whatever's not being done. And that's a, yeah, it defies categorization, which actually, unfortunately, also means that you struggle with the, with to, to shift a book that way. It's, it's about defining the thing itself. You can't just yeah. say, you know, it's not like, I've written a book about Ben Franklin and yeah. people are like, well, I know about that, so I want to find out more. It's trying to kind of educate people about this, I think, fascinating aspect of British history, the kind of hidden seam of social reform for, for this extended period of time and with all of these same people involved in it. Yeah, I think the way you describe it at one point is as a vehicle, and that's certainly what appeals to different kind of prominent figures hopping on and off. Yeah. perhaps taking control. I mean, I wonder though, having, it seems to me, it's obviously well known now, but in the middle of the 19th century, it seems to be completely integral to the public life of, of the, not just Britain, but the empire as well. In the 18th century, it would have been the club for a lot of people. Um, not that it's a club, but the kind of society where, you, you know, pretty much every prime minister of the late 18th century and early 19th century was in some way involved, maybe just tangentially in a way that they just kind of paid the subscription fee, became a member. But it was one of the high status things that people would subscribe to, partly because it was the only game in town in terms of the kinds of societies that existed. 19th century, certainly, though, with the Great Exhibition, you know, that gets a lot of people's attentions and suddenly they think they see it as a vehicle for their own reforms. Um, Examinations were one of the things that came off the back of that, trying to support the mechanics institutions, um, so sort of bottom-up, self-educating workers, often you know going to creating their own night schools in a way. Mm-hmm. Um, Birkbeck University being a famous um, successor to the London Mechanics Institution still has its evening classes in that kind of original vein, as well as things like limited liability becoming more generalised in the 1850s, trying to extend education to, to girls for secondary education. Um, so the Girls Public Day School Trust used the RSA as a platform to try and get going. You could go on and on. I could, <laughs> I could just, we could spend the whole thing, me just listing is, initiatives. It, yeah, it is one of those books where you're constantly reading it going, oh, I didn't know that. <laughs> I, I didn't know that Brunel had designed the original uh, Great Exhibition. Mm. It's a giant steel dome. Yeah, and then well, I think one of the things that comes across in it actually, particularly with uh, a character called Henry Cole, is how much little kind of twists of fate changed. So it's someone getting his design in front of the right person for the Crystal Palace meant that that sort of usurped yeah. Brunel. I mean, as a historian, how how given are you to seeing these things in terms of oh, it was destined to be like that because certain structures were in place, or there are there are there just little moments, and particularly individuals without whom this story would have been completely different. Yeah, I think, you know, Henry Cole's a really interesting one. I like to say that he's, you know, great man theory often gets knocked, or great person theory, I guess, often gets gets knocked. And with good reason, 
But I think there are a few individuals where maybe it does apply, and Henry Cole's probably one of them, right? This is He's a, just a powerhouse. He goes from project to project to project to project, successfully in many cases. Things mm-hmm. like you know, He's involved with the introduction of the penny postage, which yeah. to us is like such so, an so obvious just to, thing. For our listeners, I mean, what sort of years are we talking? He ran the society in the mid-19th century. Right, yeah. yeah. So he, he comes to dominate the society in the the late 1840s, early 1850s, and pretty much for the rest of his life, right up until the 1880s, he's the key figure that, even though he's not technically in charge, he's not the president, he's not the secretary, he's, I think, just a vice president for most of that period. He's, he's the ch- chairman only briefly for about a year or two. You know, the society often gets called King Cole's Parliament because right. whatever idea he had, he gets to air... Yeah there and try to use it as a platform. And I think one of the reasons he could be so successful in pushing reforms, and I'm talking the first major overhaul of the patent system in 1852, there hadn't been any really legislation since the 1620s that kind of really defined the system. Copyright reform, what else? Oh, the introduction of military drill exercises in schools. Penny postage is actually before the society, but it's just another example of just him kind of applying his principles and getting involved with things. At one point, he's asked to to lead the Anti-Corn Law League um, in London by Richard Cobden, though he turns that down. Um, So he's clearly a campaigner um, with, with... great effect and he does get things done so he also and at the same time i think one of the reasons he's so successful is that he wears multiple hats so he's vice president of the society of arts he wheedles his way into various other societies gets if if he needs to use them for various things Um, but he's also a civil servant and so after the great exhibition given he manages to make this huge success he then gets his own department the department for science and art eventually which then means he gets to control South Kensington, basically. In fact, he invents South Kensington. He even comes up with the name South Kensington because before that area was usually called Brompton. Um, oh, right. But there's okay. Kensington Palace nearby yeah. and he thinks, you know, this is a much posher-sounding neighbourhood. And so he creates the South Kensington Museum, which nowadays the, the usual successor that's named, although it kind of is more complicated than that, but the usual successor is the V&A, um, as well as accumulating, agglomerating all of these different museums to that area. So the whole museum mile is really his project yeah. um, with Prince Albert's support and Albert I think gets a lot of the credit nowadays in you know, whatever TV shows about the Victorians you might watch um, but I think Henry Cole is the real driver here yeah. to the extent that actually there's a, at one point it seems like Albert is trying to hide some of his projects from Cole in case he gets his hands too involved uh, one thing I liked about it is and we'll come on to the kind of links with the, the ideological side of the society because it almost looks like a mirror to the trends that were going mm-hmm. on in that time but Cole was this sort of arch-utilitarian and one of the things he didn't mind just lying repeatedly, including to Prince Albert, as you said. Yeah, the ends justified the means. So if you think of the basic utilitarian principles, ends justify the means, Cole has that all over. Although, you know, he he can appear self-interested, but at times I always think he's, he's breaking rules in the public interest, or at least what he sees to be the public interest. And then also the principle of the greatest good for the greatest number. So this is the period where the society really tries to start rolling out projects that affect everybody. Mass education, the great exhibition, which is something that, in theory, the entire public can benefit from rather than mm-hmm. as they were doing before prizes for individual inventors even though it has that knock-on effect big mass reforms changes to the law i think that also comes under that right i think a lot of the way that i guess policy people today act in terms of you know calling for something to happen 
has a kind of Victorian origin story, at least it's kind of a part of that story to it in terms of the the default thing that campaigners do. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I mean, he's friends with um, John Stuart Mill, so Bentham's disciple. Yeah. But then Cole has a bit of a twist to it. So he's not really a philosopher himself. He's a doer. I, I like to say that he, his mantra is kind of utilitarianism applied. Um, but yeah, Cole, yeah, I, I could go on and on about Cole. Yeah, uh, <laughs> I think there's a bit where you talk about how he felt uncomfortable with actual philosophers. Yeah, he's, yeah. Uh, he seems to be out of his depth a lot of the time yeah. when it comes to the utilitarian circles. But that's the RSA all over, isn't it? They're the ones who actually do stuff rather than just yeah, cogitate. And you set out at the very beginning, there's this difference between the French kind of Cartesian approach and the, the savant versus the fabricant. Mm-hmm. And the RSA was always steeped in the latter rather than... So it's a kind of... And that, I mean, that, speaking of savant versus fabricant, the competition with France seemed to be one of the things as well which spurred the society onto kind of ever greater things. Yeah, I mean, what... The, and the reason for that is that talking about national competition gets things done a lot of the time, right? It's that you sometimes need to kind of confect an, an enemy of some sorts to get certain reforms through. Actually, Cole's a good example of this. So he gets the Great Exhibition off the ground because it looks like the French are going to do something similar first. And then, in fact, they're copying the national exhibitions that had been going on in France since yeah. the 1790s on Napoleon's initiatives um, to promote catch-up with Industrial Revolution Britain. But then they kind of use the fact that France seems to be catching up via these exhibitions to get an exhibition of their own. They try to be the first to have an international exhibition. Um, they also then, when the exhibition does happen, say, look, actually the French are still catching up and we've just been able to compare like with like, you know, the French machines next to the British machines in the same room. And it seems like we therefore need to get the reforms that I happen to have been interested in for a few decades or so past as well. So mass education... Yeah. And, so on. and that's, that brings me on slightly tangentially to the next one, which is that you say that at the time, let's say, that, would you say it was the heyday in the mid-19th century of the society, the state was much, much smaller than we now know it. And you say the main thing it did was fight wars and service the debt from yeah. previous wars. I mean, to what extent do you think the, the efforts of the likes of Henry Cole and, and his colleagues helped move the state into other areas I think very much so and this is one of the interesting things is that when we look at 19th century history I think a lot of us just kind of assume that the state moving in that direction was quite inevitable Mm -hmm. that we would just get more and more social programs that you would have this kind of shift of the state beyond just warfare and actually one of the things I was quite surprised in 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 the research uh, for this book was actually just how tiny the group of campaigners was that achieved that Cole is one of them, he's not the only one, but really there aren't that many utilitarians actually in Britain at the time, but their effect on policy is outstanding. I mean, it just is astonishing, just this tiny group of MPs, radicals, people who were involved with Bentham in the early days and then with Mill in the mid-19th century. I can't even imagine that they could command anything close to a majority in the House of Commons. And yet somehow at crucial periods, they're leveraging certain institutions or getting certain committees formed to, you know, first of all, get things like schools of design in the 1830s. Again, competition with France is, is one of the key things there. Then in the 1850s, off the, off the back of the Great Exhibition, Cole gets to reform the schools of design via his new department. They start introducing examinations. I mean, examinations are a really clever way, really ingenious way of introducing the state education system. 
because one of the constraints that people had on the time, if they wanted to create something like that, was that schools were overwhelmingly run by religious groups. So mm-hmm. if the state gets involved, do you teach? What religion do you teach in school? If you have Anglican schools, then the dissenters, the nonconformists, are going to put their hands up and say, "Don't do that." If you teach dissent, you obviously can't teach any of the dissenting creeds in school because Anglicanism is the established religion. If you say, "Don't teach any religion in school at all," both sides say, "Oh my God, don't do that either." And so examinations were a clever way of getting around that because instead of getting involved in the schools themselves, they could just get involved in what the teachers taught in those schools. Um, and leave the actual management of the schools to whatever groups were already doing it. Um, so they inv- so they come up with things like teaching to the test. In fact, they create the test so that the teaching to the test can take place for things like the, the three R's, reading, writing, arithmetic, for science and design, which are Cole's, well, Cole's thing is really design, but science and design, which is department overseas, um, and then paying teachers seemingly one of his ideas as well, um, based on the results yeah. that they get in those exams. And so because teachers were quite poorly paid at the time, um, I guess it was ever thus, right? But teachers were very, very famously at the time poorly paid. And so this was a great way for them to get a bonus was to teach a bit of science, get their students to pass these exams. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard. But now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com wondersuite. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Yeah, and it's one of the the other things that you touched on is the way that the RSA, along with other things that were happening, such as the repeal of the Corn Laws, which is completely connected to, like you said, to Henry Cole and so on, mm-hmm. were kind of dragging Britain from an aristocratic type of system into something much more meritocratic. And you could say it was a kind of engine of social progress as well as one of innovation in a kind of industrial sense. Yeah, I think the kind of improvement they're aiming for is not just specific te- technological improvements. You know, for coal, it's not just greatest good for the greatest number, it's greatest beauty for the greatest number. He gets obsessed with the idea of better aesthetics for the British people. The V&A's secret mission, you know, in the in the early years when he's doing it, is to try and expose people to good examples of good taste. Yeah, and right. in one case, even bad taste. Teapots and things like this. Well. Yeah, yeah, teapots and so on. In fact, that's how he gets an audience with... Prince Albert is by winning a competition on which he was one of the judges. So then right. he can meet him for the, the prize giving. 
But yeah, teapots, carpets, wallpapers, what have you. Um, and just designing everyday objects within the home, as well as getting people to be able to go to museums and expose them to, mm. to, to better designs in that way. I mean, that's also that's why he sees exhibitions as a really interesting project. Yeah, I mean, I wonder, um, what can you draw on from the way that the RSA tried to stimulate innovation that perhaps could be, is kind of evergreen lessons about what works and what doesn't work? So premiums is one of the things that we that comes across that it often does work very well. Yeah, so there's a few from the different... I mean, what's interesting is I think today you kind of need institutions like the RSA, what they did in the past, in addition to what currently goes on. So it's almost like they moved on from each of these initiatives, but actually some of those initiatives could well be resurrected, I think, to great effect. Prizes, premiums for non-patented inventions is one of them. Now, the non-patented bit is quite interesting. A lot of people have often assumed that they they did that because they were anti-monopoly, they were anti-patent, it was this kind of thing against the public good. Now, maybe there's a bit of that in the early days, um, but actually it also has this other effect of meaning that when you give prizes, you're giving it for inventions that would not already have been done, right? Because patents were expensive, you only patent if it's going to be a profitable thing, at least at the time. Nowadays, I guess it's much more common, it's much cheaper, partly thanks to society's own lobbying in the 1840s and 50s. But having these, these prizes, this prize system, I think was extremely effective because it complemented the existing innovation promoting systems like the patent system. It meant that the kinds of inventors that got rewards were the kinds of people who were doing stuff, maybe if they patented in, in, in another field, but they would also invent something that was a consumer safety improvement, you know, off the top of my head, things like safer carriages, things that would... Improvements to ceramics to prevent leakage of lead that might be Mm. in the the clay or used in the pottery process. They have all these fears about ways that industry has been impacting health. As well as worker safety improvements, famously um, the scandoscope for cleaning chimneys, which was to basically make the kids unemployed because they were worried that Kids as young as four are getting these horrific cancers because they're being sent up chimneys to clean them. Turns out you can actually come up with a pretty easy way of a machine for cleaning it as an adult without actually anyone having to go up inside the chimney. And then also having those sorts of prizes, having an alternative to the patent system meant that you involve other kinds of people in innovation. So people who are too rich in some ways to get involved with, you know, muddying their hands with vulgar occupations, the aristocrats. For them, they'd get the honorary medals, which they might get from some duke or some prince, depending on who's you know, at the prize giving, as well as people who are too poor to patent, for which is just unaffordable, but might still want to get some kind of reward, um, as well as excluded groups. So lots of women um, winning these prizes, occasionally ethnic minorities, which, you know, in Britain in the 18th century, extremely rare for people to be involved yeah. in that kind of way yeah that's one of the things that comes across is that how far ahead of its time it is so one of the, they allowed women in sort of 200 years before they got the vote um indians uh, who at the time were obviously completely marginalized i think you say in the 30s an indian managed to become i forget the title um Oh, a chairman, chairman, chairman of the yeah, RSA yeah. in the 30s, yeah. So the first, mean, I think, Indian member, at least in the 1840s. Yeah. I mean, was it seen by the rest of society as this slightly kind of bohemian, radical organisation? I don't think so. I've not noticed anything like that. I think it always had a kind of air of officialdom right. um, to well, it. Even before it was well. royal, though. Yeah. So, so the royal only gets added in 1908. 
only royally chartered in 1847. So from 1754 to 1847, it's just an unincorporated association, basically. I mean, it has no secure, proper legal standing. It just happens to be so influential, given, as I said, you had 18th century prime ministers and so on involved. Yeah. Um, to the extent that in the, in, in the 1810s, when there's a crackdown on societies because of fears of a kind of new revolution following the French one, because um, the Earl of Liverpool happens to be a vice president... They kind of just ignore the law there that's about these societies getting special license to mm -hmm. continue operating because they just assume, even though they actually technically, to the letter of the law, should have been getting some kind of license to sit and hold these meetings, they just kind of get his personal assurance they don't need to. So in, I think it's always been at this kind of stage. At the same time, they were attracting radicals. And I think because of its um, potential for getting things done, and I guess getting the ear of those sorts of people who are involved... You do get a lot of people over the centuries who, who kind of have an agenda, so they want to use its network in that way. Just moving on a bit from, I mean, we've talked a lot about the 19th century. How does the society evolve in the after said, uh, the First and Second World Wars? Yeah, it's an interesting period. So what happens is, in some ways, you get a real lack of activity Although you do get these kind of bright spots, like we mentioned the, the purchase of West Wickham, mm -hmm. this campaign for the preservation of ancient cottages, you know, House Ramsey, MacDonald, Stanley Baldwin, David Lloyd George, the Queen, all of them involved in this campaign, um, as well as the environmentalist stuff in the 1960s. And then later on, the 1990s as well, you've got a kind of resurgence. But I think what happens is that a few things, really. Maybe this is a kind of warning to non-profits of all kinds, is that if you get very secure sources of income, which it does in the 1880s when it starts charging for examinations in order to pay the cost of continuing them. What happens is that by the 1980s, so about 100 years later, the RSA is actually an examinations board with this weird society thing, you know, undefinable organisation um, attached to it. Um, so what happens is that it kind of has this other source of income, even though there's actually very little mixing of the incomes there. Um, but at the same time, it gets that royal connection, or at least makes it more explicit in 1908. Members start referring to themselves as fellows, which creates the perception that it's actually some kind of exclusive club rather than just a subscription-funded you know, improvement agency or fund for people to use uh, for these public-spirited ends. And so people either think it's some kind of weird learning society um, or it's some kind of club, and so membership just goes up and up and up regardless of what it's doing. And at the same time, it has that extra financial support from the exams. And so it doesn't actually feel the need to do things. There's very much less of an incentive to do things. Whereas if you look at the run-up to the Great Exhibition, the society almost dies and has to completely reinvent itself because people just aren't being involved. So, you know, post-Great Exhibition, you see this steady decline again after this huge spike in membership. Um, and then from the 1900s, roughly, when, with that royal connection, it just goes up and up. And has continued to this day right now. There's over 30,000 people. But what, what I think has happened is that in the recent past, um, there have been a few really, I think, crucial decisions that have put the society back on the right track. First of those being hiving off the exam board. So nowadays, you know, a lot of parents will, and kids will be familiar with OCR, which stands oh, yeah. for yeah. <laughs> Oxford Cambridge RSA, right? It's actually a, a merger of the existing, of, of, the, of the original public examinations boards, all set up by those, this very small group of utilitarians at around the same time in the 1850s. Somehow these that all inspired one another in, at around the same time then ended up re-merging um, in the 1990s um, after the RSA got rid of its kind of 
you know, separated it out formally. But when it did so, it lost three quarters of its staff, three quarters of its revenue, its entire operating surplus. And so suddenly it has to force itself to actually find new things to do. Again, find gaps to fill, mm-hmm. uh, which is challenging, right? That's uh, Every organization except the RSA has a thing it does and it just does those things and it either continues doing those things successfully or it, or it, or it doesn't. With the RSA, it does something. It then hands that over to someone else and then it has to find something completely new to do once it's clear that the gap, the niche is being filled. And so that means that it's become a mother of societies. You've got all these spin-offs that continue today, today like the Royal Academy, like the Blue Plaque Scheme, like the fourth plinth on Trafalgar Square, continue on and on. But some of the ones... Yeah. Those it just seems like an endless out. list of things that it's either attached to or originated. Yeah. Well, I don't know. I did a Blue Plaque RSA, for example. I thought it was, I don't know, Historic England or something like that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it is now run by Historic England, but... Before that, London County Council, it was a London thing. And before that, the RSA for a few decades, actually. And again, often what's interesting is you have these secret missions behind them that people don't appreciate today. So the blue plaques were, before the introduction of planning law, all about preventing buildings from being torn down. Because for the Victorians, newer was better. You know, Now it's like older is better because there are certain construction skills, I suppose, that you know really made these buildings last. But... For the Victorians, they were tearing stuff down, you know, regardless. So, I mean, fast forward to 2020, I mean, what is... I look at the RSA's work now. I mean, one of our columnists works is the head of future work at the RSA. I mean, that seems to me to be one of their main streams, is working out how what a kind of good economy looks like. Yeah, I think there's a few things that have been bubbling, actually, bubbling around since the mid-20th century. Things like, what does work look like for people with such massive acceleration in technology. So a lot of people at the RSA are interested in things like uh, universal basic incomes, um, trying to get a trial set up for those sorts of policies. They're also interested in things like deliberative democracy, which is actually kind of interesting because it actually harks right back to the society's roots because for the first hundred years, actually, the society itself was a deliberative democracy. Mm -hmm. It was one person, one vote, male, female, whatever... And, you know, if you had a proposal, you'd just stand up in the meetings every Wednesday and just kind of try and get this new prize or this new initiative funded through a majority vote. Um, so it's interesting that it's kind of gone back to that. But, yeah, deliberative democracy, um, future of the future of work, often an interest in education as well. So right now the RSA has a sort of partnership having set up various academy schools when, when academies became a policy in the Blair years. Um, so there is an RSA chain of academy schools, for example, which, again, also originates with something else a bit older from the 1970s and 80s, which was this idea of completely reimagining education as being about competencies and not you know, the actual specific knowledge itself, but about teaching. Uh, capability, education for capability, they called it. Now, unfortunately, that didn't quite work out in the early first few years partly i think just because parents pressured the schools into actually taking the exams more seriously so some of these initiatives they they have to change or adapt based on whether or how successful they are as well well uh, i mean anton that has, it's a it's been a, a whirlwind tour through <laughs> about 150 odd years of um how, how old is it actually? It's, what, 266 yeah. now. 266, yeah, maths. Clearly, I need to go to the RSA and get some arithmetic lessons. <laughs> so, um, but uh, thank you very much. And the book Arts and Mind is out now. Um, is it available in all good bookshops? 
Yes. It is. Good Excellent. bookshops. Yeah. Good bookshops. All online. So thank you very much, Anton. Have you ever Googled your own name? Prepare for a shock because your personal info, including addresses and phone numbers, is all out there. It's all harvested by data brokers and sold legally. Aura is a personal digital security service that scans the internet for your sensitive information and provides a full suite of privacy-enhancing tools. For a limited time, Aura is offering listeners a 14-day free trial at Aura.com slash safety. That's A-U-R-A dot com slash safety to learn more and activate the 14-day trial period. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.